We're in the process of discussing the book of Jude. And our service this morning will be divided up. Some discuss several verses, sing some, discuss several more verses, and then several other verses. But the reason for picking out I know whom I have believed is to remind us as we live in a world where we're to contend for the faith, just as the readers of Jude did, that we know whom we have believed. Our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is in the Lord. And as we think about our body contending, coming from Jude, verses 22 and 23, when I say our body, talking about the body of Christ, we need to keep in mind that as Jude is writing, he begins with a very strong emphasis on the fact that the people to whom he is writing were called by God, they're loved by God, they're kept by God. Then he goes into a discussion on the false teachers, an exhortation to contend for the faith because the false teachers are kept for judgment or destruction. Then he closes the book by reminding them that God is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless, and so on. And in verses 17 through 23, he basically is telling them how to contend for the faith. In verse 3 he says, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith. And then he tells us how to do that. Notice in verse 22 of Jude, he says, Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy, mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. So we contend for the faith by being merciful to those who doubt. The idea of mercy is to extend compassion rather than finding fault. To extend compassion rather than finding fault. And who is this compassion to be extended to? To those who doubt. What is happening in the context? People are being tempted to doubt God because of the incorrect teaching of the false teachers. These certain men who are clouds without rain. They're shepherds who only feed themselves. They've been teaching. People are being tempted to doubt. And Jude says, be merciful to them. Extend compassion. And an example How many of you have ever blown it in walking with God? And you begin to question, I'm not measuring up at this point in time. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe God doesn't accept me. I really blew it in how I responded to that trial. And I've been told over and over again by religious people that you have to measure up if you're going to be accepted. Whereas scripture says, Christ measured you up and you respond to that. 
but you're tempted to doubt God's love and God's commitment. And someone comes along and says, Cheryl, yes, you blew it, but you're loved by God. Don't doubt God. And he's telling us as a body, he's telling the people to whom he is writing, be merciful to those who doubt. That's not a job that's just for me or for you, but the body as a whole. Who's doubting? Who's struggling? Extending mercy to them. He says, next in verse 22, snatch others from the fire and save them. When he says, snatch others from the fire and save them, in light of the flow of the context, apparently there's some people here that are being very tempted and basically have made a decision to yield to incorrect teaching. And he says, snatch them from the fire. Fire implies judgment. Fire implies that which is not good. And he says, snatch them. Go after them. I'll give you an example of what it means to snatch. Years ago when <clears throat> Ruth Ann and the kids and I were on vacation, Chris was a little kid, still in a diaper, and he had a pair of short pants on. <clears throat> the four kids and I went over to the sliding board, and it was one of those big high ones, about 12 feet high, I think, you know, you go up this big long ladder and you get on and you come down. And Danny and Beth and Jason had been coming down that slide, and they got the brilliant idea that it would be nice if Chris came down. So I can't remember who it was. They arranged that someone was going to be at the bottom to catch Chris. And I think it was Danny helped Chris up the ladder. And Chris is sitting there ready to go. And I was standing at the side of the slide. And Chris started and he went just a couple feet. And then he put his legs down and his bare legs caught and flipped him right off the slide. And I happened to be standing at the right place. And I snatched him. If I had not been there, he would have banged his head on some piers that were holding the support bars. Here we have a case of someone being lured into incorrect teaching. And Jude says, snatch them. give you an example of snatching someone. There's a man who told me years ago, he said, I'm a believer. And I said, how do you know you're a believer? He said, I know I'm a believer because I made a profession of faith in Christ some 25 years ago. I said, anything else? He said, no, I made a profession of faith 25 years ago. And I had to snatch that guy. I had to say, if you're basing your walk with God on what happened 25 years ago, there's something mighty wrong with you. You're buying into a teaching that is incorrect. Yes, we come to faith in Christ, but we respond to that faith by living in sensitivity to Him. 
and you haven't been living in sensitivity to him, you need to change. What was I doing? I was snatching him from an incorrect teaching. Again, we're to all be doing that. And then Jude goes on in verse 23. He says, To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by the corrupted flesh. Mercy, extend compassion. Mixed with fear. Seems to, fear is the idea of a healthy, deep respect. Extend mercy, mixed with fear, hating even the clothing, clothing stained by the corrupt flesh. Now, if you look earlier in the book, the false teachers yield to selfish desires, fleshly desires. And Jude is saying, as a group of believers, you need to be willing to show mercy with deep fear or respect as you hate that which is presented by these corrupted teachers that appeals to the flesh. Example of that in our culture today is a tremendous emphasis on the sensual in worship today. Worship's got to make me feel good. It's got to turn me on. I've got to get excited. And it becomes about the person rather than about God, our audience of one. And I think Jew would be saying, show mercy to that person, but with deep fear, hate. A teaching that places undue emphasis on the scene, on the feel good, and so on. So I would pose a question. Who should you be merciful to because they're doubting? Who should you snatch from the fire? And going back to the book of Jude, Jude is concluding his book as he began the book. He began the book with, to those who have been called, who are loved by God, the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. He concludes with, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with a great joy. So I would pose a question, this is a thought question, not looking for a response. Who is God? If a fellow worker or another student came to you and said, tell me about your God, how would you respond? If a friend who is a non-believer said to you, tell me what your God has done for you in the last couple of weeks, what would you say? Jude closes his book concerning false teachers and false teaching with a strong emphasis on God. Our understanding of God's ability, our understanding of God's attributes, to a large extent will determine how quickly we fall into false teaching Jude knew that the knowledge of God 
<clears throat> was essential to correctly responding to false teaching. Thus, he closes his letter with what we call a doxology. See, the emphasis today, and I'm not sure about Jude's day, but the emphasis today is so much in Christianity upon how-to. We want to know how to raise our children. We want to know how to respond to worry. We want to know how to have a divorce-proof marriage. We want to know how to live godly on the job. We want to know how to share Christ. We want to know how to read Scripture. We want to know how to resist false teachers. How-to may be fine, but the how-to has to take a distant back seat to just knowing God's ability and his attributes. We may know how to, but if we don't know God, we're going to be sucked in pretty quickly to that which is incorrect. So Jude says some things about God. To him, obviously referring to God, who is able... <clears throat> God is able. He has strength. He has ability. Years ago, when some of us went to the Dominican Republic, we confessed, maybe not verbally, maybe not out in the open, our inability to fly. How did we confess that? We get on the airplane and entrusted our lives to the plane and to the pilot and the co-pilot. We're saying we can't. Here he says, to him who is able, the one who has an inherent strength to do what? To keep you from falling. To him who is able to keep you, the beloved believers, to keep you from falling. And that means to express <clears throat> Watchful care. God cares for his children just like a shepherd does his sheep. The Lord is my shepherd, I not, shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me be still, beside still waters, and so on. To the one who is able to keep you. It also stresses safe custody. There's many attacks from false teachers in Acts chapter 20. We find that Paul warned the Ephesians about false teaching that would come, and he said it will even come from within your church in Ephesus. In writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he again warns about false teaching. And in 2 Peter chapter 2, as he writes to the people in Asia Minor, what's he warning them? There's going to be false teachers. And then Jude says, there's certain men who have crept in among you, but he concludes the book with, who is able to keep you from falling. Abundance of false teaching around today, but God is able to keep us from falling. And the idea of falling also involves stumbling. To him who is able to keep you from Stumbling. 
I think in the flow of the passage, it says able to keep you from falling. It's not falling from grace. It's falling into incorrect teaching. He's able to keep you from falling into incorrect teaching. So in a world where there's all kinds of incorrect teaching, Jude says to him who's able to keep you from falling. And then he says to present you before his glorious presence. The idea of God's presence here seems to be his primary abode. We know that the angels and Satan came from their business throughout the earth into the presence of God. So to him who's able to present you before his glorious presence. How? Without thought. In the midst of being bombarded with incorrect teaching, being tempted to follow incorrect teaching, some doubt, some are being snatched from the fire. He says, you're going to be presented to God without thought, no blemish on your record. So a body of believers may be bombarded with incorrect teaching. God is able to keep you from falling and to present you in his glorious presence without fault. Do you ever think about how many times you struggle, how many times you've blown it, how many times you're being tempted to follow that which is incorrect? And Jude says, you're going to be presented to God before his glorious presence without fault. And then he says, with great joy. So here's a Joe being presented to God without fault, without blemish. Here's a Sharon being presented to God without blemish, with great joy. So if I were to say to Ray... You don't need to respond to these questions, Ray. In the last week, Ray, have you had any incorrect thoughts? <clears throat> and if Ray were to say yes, could you share some of them? Ray, have you ever been angry at anybody and felt like doing something not good to them? Ray, have you ever get upset at Sharon and respond in an unloving way? And suppose Ray answered all of them, yes, yes, yes. God's going to present Ray to himself without fault. Jude is encouraging the believers to keep in focus that in the midst of being bombarded with all kinds of incorrect teaching, God is the one able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence with great joy. See, one of those joys in my life came years ago when Ruth Ann and her dad stood at the back of the church in Northumberland. And the music played and eventually all the attendants get in and then Ruth Ann and her dad came to the front. 
And I can remember her dad with great joy giving Ruthann to me. It's with great joy that the people to whom Jude is writing are going to be presented to God. without fault. See, the issue is not in our ability. The issue is in God's ability as he works in our lives. So, a couple of questions before we sing together. Do you know that you will be presented to God without fault? Are you confident that you have a relationship with God, that you'll be presented to God without fault. I would also encourage you to meditate often upon God's ability to keep you and to present you without fault. Who does the keeping? Who? Who does the keeping? God. Who presents you without fault? God. So it's not dependent upon us. Dependent upon what God has done through Christ. I think the ability of God as discussed in this passage should move us to sing together hymn two. I'm not sure what the number is. But he hideth my soul. 352. Thank you very much, Naomi, for ministering the music. In the context of false teaching, Jude says, To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. That again is in the context of teachers who had slipped in among these believers and turned the grace of God into a license for immorality. Some years ago, I called a fellow and I said, what's going on in your life? Something's not right. Because you've been avoiding believers and you've been avoiding me. And he was reluctant to talk. So I called him again, and uh, I said, you know, we need to talk. There's something not right in your life. A couple days later, he called me, and he said, yeah, Pastor, I'm willing to talk to you. I need to talk to you. And the bottom line was that he had slipped into incorrect teaching that turned the grace of God into a license for immorality. We sat down and talked, and I reasoned with him, and I took him to Scripture. And we get done talking, and he said, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to repent. I said, okay. 
couple weeks later, he gave me a call and he said, Pastor, I got to talk to you. Can I come right away? And I said, sure, come, we'll talk. We shared and we interacted and he said, Pastor, here's what I've, what I've fallen into. And the bottom line was he fell into incorrect teaching, which turned the grace of God into a license for sin. And because of some past dealings with him, I was able to say, God is able to keep you from falling, to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. He said, Pastor, I want to repent. I want to turn from taking the grace of God and turning it into a license for sin. And he repented and was walking with God. See, God was at work in the midst of false teaching in that case because it depended on God. And I think that's why verse 25 says, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Sometimes we have to snatch someone. Sometimes we have to rescue them. But it still goes back to God, to the only God. God stands in contrast to the gods of the world with, its many, with their many teaching, to the only God, our Savior. There's no hope apart from God, our Savior. We don't go pursuing God. God pursued us. Ephesians says in chapter 2, and you who were dead in transgressions and sins. We were dead, separated from God. God pursued. God pursued the people that Jude is writing to, to the only God, our Savior. No God? No Savior, no God pursuing, no Savior. To the only God, our Savior, he's writing again to people facing false doctrine and false teaching. He's the Savior. What does this God, our Savior, deserve? Through Christ, his glory. Think about the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is there with Peter, James, and John, and he is transfigured before them. His true nature comes out, and there was glory. To the only God, our Savior, be glory. In majesty, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 40 for just a few moments. In Isaiah chapter 40, to think about the majesty of God. Isaiah chapter 40. And look at verse 12. Isaiah 40 and verse 12. In the context of a book of judgment, Isaiah offers hope. Judgment, hope. 
and God and his character so clearly revealed. Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Think about the waters of the earth holding them in the hollow of your hand. The implication is that God's bigger than that. No, the hollow of his hand will hold the waters of the earth. Who's held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains in scales? The dust of the earth in a basket? God's bigger than that. Weighed the mountains on his scales and the hills in a balance. The obvious answer is no one has done that. But this glorious God, it's a piece of cake for him. Whom did the Lord in verse 14 consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who is it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path to understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on a scales. Take a little dust and put it on a scales. You say, it won't even register. Well, he says, um, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They're regarded as dust on a scale. Contrasting God with humans. Again, God bringing out who he is. Skip down to verse 25. To whom will you compare me or who is my equal? You ever think about trying to describe God to someone? What do you compare him to? You can't compare him to anything. There's nothing to compare him to. He's beyond everything that he made. To whom will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Then he says, lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name? Tonight, if it's clear, go out, lay on your back and look at the sky. Try to be where there's no light. And just start counting the stars. And then name each one. And then go back and say, well, I called this one that name and the next one, the next one, the next one. You say, you can't do that. I know you can't, but God does. So going back to Jude, when Jude says, to the only God or Savior be glory and majesty. Far beyond us. Glory, majesty, and power. In Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, but particularly Genesis 1, it talks about God speaking and what happened. The universe came into existence. So the next time you go to the doctor with a physical ailment, say, hey, doc, why don't you just speak me well? So a couple years ago when I went to uh, the surgeon and he said, well, you have to have hernia surgery. I said, Doc, why don't you just speak the word and I don't have to have any surgery? Uh, his response would have been, I can't do that. 
Here's the one with power that is keeping these people. He created the universe with his spoken word. To him be glory, majesty, power, and authority. The idea of authority is just total control. God does as he pleases. He is holy, and he does that which is right. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority. How? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. When did God begin? When does God end? Before all ages now and forevermore. Think back a trillion years. God was God. Think ahead, 50 trillion years, God is God. In the midst of false teaching, Jude encourages his readers by reminding them that God is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now, and forevermore. Let's sing about God and his greatness. As Travis comes to lead us, how great thou art. <clears throat>